Welcome to another episode of Colubrid and Colubroid Radio. Uh, it's been a little while since we've recorded, but Clint and I are happy to be back. So, how you doing, man? Doing great, my man. How you doing? Uh, can't complain. Um, it's the uh, calm before the storm this week. <laughs> I've got. I have three weeks before the semester starts, and um, I spent fourteen hours in meetings in the past three days, getting ready for that semester to start. And I like meetings about as much as I like a red hot needle in my eyeball. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, so there was 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 that this week. So I'm very happy to be recording tonight and talking snakes. And our guest tonight is going to be uh, Dusty Rhodes. Obviously, if you know anything about Dusty, you know he is the author of The Complete Subak and um, is pretty much the guru of Transpecos rat snakes. So that is the focus of the episode tonight. And uh, we reached out to Dusty because several of the listeners said they wanted a Subak episode. So I couldn't picture anybody better to get than Dusty. So um, we'll be talking to him shortly, but we're going to be giving you all our updates over the past, you know, couple weeks. So for me, uh, the biggest update that I have is that I attended a meeting that I've not gone to before, and I wanted to kind of rant and rave about it for a little bit. Um, and that meeting was IHS. IHS is the International Herpetological Symposium. Uh, I've been to lots of scientific meetings with my job. I've been just this year, been to something called the Southern Division of the American Fishery Society meeting. I've been to one called the Association of Southeastern Biologists been to a couple academy meetings, if you know what that is. Um, but I've never been to IHS, and IHS was kind of perfect. I, I can't give this meeting enough props because it had everything in my universe in one meeting. There were you know, field-based ecology herpetologists that were doing work in Guatemala and doing work um, – in the United States and the Bahamas and places like that. There were herpetoculturalists. Um, those of you who know Mike Stefani um, and uh, Brian Waterloo, they, they both do monitor husbandry in the private sector. They gave talks next to these PhDs giving talks. And then there were zoo professionals talking about gaping and crocodilians. So along those lines, if you are remotely interested in attending a, a, a a meeting, a scientific meeting, I, I would highly recommend this because I spoke with the soon-to-be president, Mike Clarkson, who many of you will know from Herpetoculture Circles. He li- really likes file snakes and homolopsids and, and things like that. And basically, the, the attitude of IHS is very different than a lot of academic meetings. It's that all are welcome. And I can honestly say that that was, without question, the vibe. Um, I've been to scientific meetings before where I did not feel welcome. <laughs> I, I was not worthy to be in that room, and that was not the vibe at this meeting. It was, it, it was absolutely fantastic. So you're going to be hearing me talk about IHS pretty much for the next year, um, plug in the living crap out of it, because those of you who have bred rare species or you know, you're sitting on a, a, a husbandry report and you don't know where to put it or talk about it, um, this is a place for you to do that. And I will be there next year with my students. It's going to be in June, and it's going to be in Knoxville, Tennessee, which is also pretty cool because that's a fairly neutral place. So um, if you're in the if you're east of the Mississippi, it's a neutral place. If you're in the west, kind of a far clip, but there's a lot of interstates that lead you to there. So 
that was my big thing. And I, I presented uh, the paper that I wrote on husbandry and um, the animals publication. And it was extremely well received. And I talked to a lot of people about it. It was just fun. My favorite meetings are the ones that are just fun. <laughs> and this was definitely that. So um, there's that. And then on the herpetoculture side of things, uh, I have had more king snakes hatch than I want to talk about. And I'm currently trying to get them to eat. I'm fairly certain I will be sending you some king snakes, Clint. <laughs> <laughs> that does Free. not hurt my feelings. Yes, my <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, so you will be getting those. Uh, and then the false water cobras are all hatching like crazy. Um, I, I, I'm, I, as everybody knows, I'm not really a morph person. Um, but I decided with false water cobras, since that was going to be my species, that I would dive into the morphs. And I, I bred a het lavender to a lavender. And if that was a simple recessive, that should have been a 50-50 likelihood of getting a lavender. And I got four hets. So that's telling me that that may not be a simple recessive or I need to go play the lottery. <laughs> so, um, But the cool thing about hets with falsies is they're visual hets. So you get these – I actually like the visual heads more than the lavenders. That's my dirty little secret. Um, they come out with this like lemon yellow coloration to them that is just incredibly badass. So I'm, I'm really not that upset. Um, so I'm going to be raising those guys up just for fun over the next year and then moving them on. So there's that. And then the final thing is with the last episode, I threw out into the ether. If you're interested in a false water cobra um, – you know, it has to be legal. I'm not shipping if you're in Tennessee or New York or Louisiana where they are legal. That's just not going to happen. It's not worth it to me. But if you're one of the states where it is legal and you're a listener um, and you reach out to me, I would be happy to sell you one at a discount. So um, hit me up and we'll go from there. So that's my updates. What do you have, Clint? Oh, man, we've got so much going on right now. You know, you talked about the uh, calm before the storm, and I, I have no calm, but there's a storm coming. You know, it's go, go, go. We have um, thing. the racks are filling up right now with, with baby colubrids. I mean, that's definitely hit. Tons of milk snakes, king snakes, corn snakes. Um, the Asians are hatching. I mean, it's uh, mandarins. Uh, the green bush were already out. Some Chinese beauties. I mean, just tons of things popping right now. Um, we so I, I mentioned before about going to uh, Reptile Basics. I think you know making mm -hmm. that trip. Um, I don't. There, there was one thing. So if I didn't go all the way into it, um, ten hours one way yes. from where I'm at, uh, hauling a, a ten foot trailer, and I'm not a guy that's good at backing up trailers. Yep. So you know there was a lot of apologies at gas stations. But uh, truth truth be told, all, all in it went great, went fine. I really couldn't complain. Um, but one interesting thing, other than the fact that that facility was fantastic, Rich, the owner of Reptile Basics, has been so good to me, and, and um, I'm really excited with what we brought home. But uh, so being a Midwest boy, <laughs> I'm, I'm real used to watching for deer shooting across the highway. Yeah. And, and, and not just because of where I've grown up, but I mean, the previous job, I was four to six hour drives almost every day through Nebraska, Kansas, you know, Missouri, all this. Mm -hmm. So I'm used to watching for big brown animals shooting across the, the way. What I'm not used to is seeing a big black one shoot across. <laughs> it. 
while going through Virginia, a black bear shot across the highway. Fat little thing just plopping along and dove under the uh, uh, the guardrail on the other side. Mm-hmm. And it's it's so funny how it takes you a moment to really oh, process. I I, I'm like, yeah. was was that that was a that was a bear. That was really a ba- They got bears out here. <laughs> I, I didn't even dawn on me to think, yeah, yeah, there's, mm-hmm. there's bears out here. So uh, so that was pretty wicked. But um, the, the trip went great. Uh, we, we've come back. We have the wall, you know, that we're calling it the um, you know, new 12-foot of, of wall caging that will be unveiled on August 12th at our one-year anniversary. Uh, so for our listeners, if you're catching this in time, August 12th, there will be tons of online specials on, on animals, on product, you name it. Uh, we really want to make this a, a big celebration because I can't believe it's been a year mm-hmm. already since we opened the doors to Metazotics. Um, uh, but it's certainly flown by. <clears throat> so with that becomes all the prep. You know, that's what we're doing right now. Um I have to ensure that we get all the pictures of the animals that are available. And every week there's more animals that become ready, you know. Um, all of these cages that we've now got in the wall, we, I've got somebody coming in extra days just to decorate, just to have those ready, um, you know, to be able to will out and have those uh, taken care of. It, it's, I, I think sometimes I, I've got that big big vision. Remember we talked about goals yep. and vision, right? Mm-hmm. And <laughs> I, I've made some promises and now I've got to <laughs> deliver them. Yeah. Uh, one of the promises I made was that uh, on the one year, every available animal will be out for viewing. And that's a big one because normally only about 15% of what's available is actually on the floor because they don't have mm-hmm. room. So the rest of them will come out in trade, trade show style. So yeah. we're talking displays, we're talking delis, but that's a lot of animals, you know, to, mm-hmm. to have out. So it's it's going to be uh, be an ordeal. So I'm doing as much as I possibly can to prepare so that the night before I've I've done as much as we can do. Yep. You know, uh, so labels, you know, everything's <laughs> set and ready. So, so yeah, man, you talked about that calm before the storm. I, I know when the storm's going to hit. I just don't feel the calm. So. Yeah. <laughs> Your, your storm's hitting before mine. mine. It is, but it's exciting. I, like, yes. You know, you're not looking forward to yours. I'm looking forward to not. mine. You know, so. <laughs> so okay. That. Well, cool. Yeah. Well, how many eggs do you think you incubated this year? I, I would say right now what's hatched, if I had to guess, um, the colubrid racks, each rack I have holds 45 and I know we have almost four of those filled already. And the ball racks, you know, ball boas, anything that mm-hmm. takes 90 degrees. Um, gosh, we have to be sitting at somewhere around 300 hatched already. And I still have plenty in the incubators. So, My and, goodness. and that's just snakes. That's not yeah. counting bearded dragons and, and whatnot. So. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, lots going on, man. <laughs> nah, no rest for the wicked. That's no, the way I like no, to live. No, that's what I signed up for. Yep. All righty. Are we ready to jump into this? Let's do it. I'm, I'm excited okay. about this one. Really I am excited. too. So as already stated, there were several people that requested 
Subox. They reached out to me. They reached out to Matt, and they reached out to to uh, Clint. Even today, so, uh, today, today I had a literally message today. for Subox. Yeah. <laughs> wow. So, so uh, you know, there literally is not. We can literally say the guy that wrote the book is our guest tonight. <laughs> so we have uh, Dusty Rhodes tonight. Uh, welcome to the show. How you doing? Thank you. Thank you. Uh, doing great. No, happy to be here. This is this is amazing. All right. Uh, Sweet. I, I, yeah, I've not been asked to do a, a Trans-Pecos Rat Snake related podcast in a, a couple of years. So uh, this, is, this is cool. All right. Excellent. So yeah. for, for those who, you know, we, we, we've alluded to it, but obviously you're a herpetoculturalist because you wrote a book on the husbandry of Subox, but it's also part of the Complete Guide to series. And uh, my favorite thing about that series is that it's not just husbandry, but all the natural history, biology, you know, it's, it's quite literally the book if you, if you, if you want to go from there. So you, you had yeah, to there's, had a, there's no more than one. That's the only one. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And, and you, you have to know the biology and everything. So herpetology must be a presence in your, your bones. So uh, the, the question that I want to ask is, how did your your start in reptiles, herpetology, where did it come from and where has it ultimately ended up? Yeah, I don't remember when it started. It started <laughs> when I was uh, – before I could form memories. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and so I, I – there's pictures of me um, growing up in Galveston County when I was three years old with – toads in my hand showing my mom you know <laughs> or whoever yeah. or whoever was taking the photo and this would have been you know 1983 or so um but the same with earth snakes and green anoles and probably you know mediterranean geckos which was the four basic herbs that you could find growing up around my house um yeah um so that's kind of how it started and like where it went from there is I uh, would go and hang out at uh, the local pet store in Texas City, Texas called, uh, gosh, Jungle Gems Pet Store. It's uh, the guys who owned it retired now. Um, but uh, the, he had a bookshelf in there. So my mom would drop me off there at this pet store and she would go and do her shopping <laughs> <laughs> um, at like Sam's Club and stuff because I have a lot of brothers and sisters. Um, and, and she'd leave me for the, you know, for an hour, two hours. Um, and he had, this was, this would, would have been around 1990, 1991. And so this is, are you familiar with the AVS series of books? The, Absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so this was like right when those were brand new and, and I was like 10 or 11 years old. Um, and so I, uh, started reading those just sitting in the aisle of his, of his pet store. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, and so there was ones on, there were ones on corn snakes and boa constrictors by that point, and ball pythons, and um, and uh, most of them were written by Philippe de Vaugelis, and, mm -hmm. um, and there was one by, uh, actually two books on corn snakes by uh, Doctor Mike McEachern, although he didn't he didn't go by Doctor or whatever in the book, but he had a PhD. Uh, in microbiology, I believe. And um, I, this was pre-internet days. And so in the back of one of his books on corn snakes, corn snake morphs, it had his mailing address. It, basically, he's asking for 
if you've got pictures <laughs> of uh, new corn snake morphs, please send me uh, prints of these in the mail. And so I, uh, I'd always had this, uh, some, some reason desire to like write a book on snakes or herps of some sort since I was little. And so I wrote him a letter in 1991 asking him, Hey, just advice on how to write a book on snakes. And he wrote me back and he sent me a, a proof, a hard copy proof of this, of one of the books that I already had. Um, and was very friendly. Um, and uh, lo and behold, um, fifteen years, sixteen years after that, <laughs> I wrote I, I wrote a book yeah, <laughs> on transpagos rat snakes in my mid twenties. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, and uh, you know, from there, I um, uh, I was an integrative biology major as an undergraduate, um, which was essentially organismal biology, evolution, yeah. and ecology, that kind of stuff, and. <clears throat> Um, and it was, it was actually, it was hard for me at first to make the jump to being science minded from being a herpeticulturist. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, but that eventually happened when I took an, a class in evolution, um, as an undergrad. Um, uh, but, but, uh, basically from there I went to graduate school, um, in the first time, uh, in 2010, uh, under Bryce Noonan at University of Mississippi, uh, who is a herpetologist and evolutionary biologist. Um, and I was um, studying Transpecos rat snakes, actually their phylogeography, and I never got to finish that, uh, that project. Um, but uh, for family reasons, I had to put graduate school on hold for about five years and move back to Texas. Um, but then eventually finished a couple of years ago uh, doing a master's uh, studying Texas horn lizards. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Excellent. Um, so there, there's more to the story, um, but I, maybe that's a good starting point. <laughs> there we go. So what, what took you towards Transpecos? You know, you, out there in Texas, seems like there's a lot of, a lot of cool species that could have been the species of choice. Yeah, well, I think it was because I wanted to read a book about them, and there wasn't one. Mm -hmm. And so I just started putting one together. I started basically putting a website together. And um, when I was when I was an undergrad and putting this together, and I, I it, it started dawning on me. I was like, somebody's going to take this, all this information, and write a book. <laughs> you know? And so I was like, you know, I need to be the one to do this. Mm -hmm. So I, uh, I was an undergrad and I was working for Dan and Colette Sutherland. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know if they're still breeding snakes. Um, but they would pay me in mice <laughs> and I asked, uh, this is like one day a week, you know, and, and that's why I wanted that job. because I would get like 200 mice every week to feed all my transpecos rat snakes. Um, but she had written a book on ball pythons, and so uh, she had told me about Bob Ashley uh, when I said I was interested in writing a book on transpecos rat snakes. Um, but, yeah, you know, why transpecos rat snakes? I think um, as, as a kid growing up in an uh, oil refinery town outside of Houston on the Gulf Coast near Galveston Island, 
I would look at books about snakes of Texas in the Southwest in the public library. And I saw photos of Trans-Pecos rat snakes, and I just thought they looked so exotic compared to this this Gulf Coast kind of environment. You know, they looked they looked like they were made from the yellow sandy rock in the deserts that they were born on. Mm-hmm. You know, and they just they uh, um, so and I you know I read books by Carl Caulfield. And he had a whole chapter dedicated mm-hmm. to his pursuit of this species in 1956. And he was just a poet, you know. He was basically oh, yeah. the Carl. Yeah, he was. He was essentially the Carl Sagan of North American herpetology in the mid 1950s and uh, through the late 1960s. And uh, and it just sounded so romantic, you know. I mean, you just wanted to be there. <laughs> Mm-hmm. out there in the desert uh, looking for these snakes and finding them. And the way he describes them is, uh, is uh, it's still to this day considered to be very beautiful prose by many herpetoculturists oh, yeah, and, and, and herpetologists. Um, you know, I'll, I'll say this. I'm sure – you know, might as well chat more about the book now. And, and I know I'm going to turn that over to Zach because, you know, you guys are the book guys, right? <laughs> I, I write funny memes on the Internet sometimes. <laughs> so but I, I want to say this about the book, Dusty, and this isn't smoke being blown in any way, shape or form. Um, it for those who are listening, if you have not read this book, I cannot recommend it enough. It is the only reptile related book and I take great pride in the in the library that I have it is the only reptile book that I can say I have literally read cover to cover cover to cover wow. and any other wow. it's you know I'll read most of it there'll be portions I want like, okay, you know this is kind of losing me and I think and it's not just the information that's in it it's the way the information is presented it's in it's like this it, it, it almost felt like like conversation, like it didn't go too far above where, you, you know, you just lose people in the science. The science was stated in a way that people were able to just follow along. And it just, you could, you could tell the journey, you know, through it. So uh, I just wanted to say that, that it, it is a incredibly informative book. That's not something that just feels like a journal, uh, you know, like a scientific journal. It's it's yes. well written and able to keep attention. And I have referred myself back to it numerous times. Every time I kill a subak, I go back <laughs> and try to figure out why. So, yes. But I'll, I'll turn this Thank over you. to you, Zach, because I, I know that uh, no worries. You know, the, the book piece is going to be all you here, buddy. Yeah. Thank so, you, by the way. No problem. Oh, no. And I agree with I, I agree with everything that – um. Clint said, I just got my first book published and, uh, oh, thank you. But, but in researching, like what the heck is the voice going to be in the book? Um, I am going to absolutely say that I read the complete sub uh, cover to cover. Um, and I loved the voice of, of this book, uh, in the complete series. I have read them all. Um, there's like kind of two different there, there's like the the green tree python books, which are more conversational, mm-hmm. and Subok fit, fits in that. And then there's yep. the ones that are like scientific monographs. And I just 
feel like the <laughs> the conversational approach is just easier to read. And plus, in my you know professional world, being a person that writes journal articles, I just don't want to write that way if I don't have to. It's very it takes the 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 the, the enthusiasm and joy has to be omitted because you're not allowed to use those those kind of words. So, uh, but on <laughs> on on that same token, I think that our listeners would be very interested. I do want to dive a little bit into like the process. So you've you've made the website. You've made your mind up that you don't want somebody to steal all the work you've done. I think that the, yeah. the, the point that is I that I like to hear about is like, at what point did you pull the trigger and you're like, this is happening? And then how did it happen? If you know what I mean. Like, what was the process of did you, did you make a great big outline for the thing? Did you just start writing? Did you edit as you go? Like, take a six months, a year, just kind of talk about the process that led to the book. Yeah. So, um, I, I can actually the book that one of the books that helped me, one of the things that helped me uh, when I decided to do this, because it was just like, this is my opportunity, you know, mm-hmm. uh, was uh, when I talked to Colette uh, and, and she said, talk to Bob Ashley. So um, before I did that, I, I bought this book that's right behind me and it's, it's the everything guide to writing a book proposal. <laughs> and um and so it, you know this is when the, these books were popular they were like you know the idiot's guide kind of yeah thing, you know mm-hmm. and uh but i just that's what i did and i just wrote a proposal I, I created like a one i followed this recipe in this book essentially uh following a um a template of having a just a paragraph synopsis of each chapter that's going to be in the book and then one sample chapter uh this was in 2007. I think it was February. Um, like I said, I was an undergrad. I was married. Um, and uh, uh, and so I went ahead and wrote this this uh, proposal up, sent it to Bob Ashley. Um, and the next morning, I got a call from him said he, saying he wanted to just publish the book. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, so it was just, you know, most people, I don't, I, I don't think a lot of people have quite that experience or they just have an idea mm-hmm. and they already have some written and they just send it off and the publisher's just like, yes, you know, a lot of people have to go through self-publishing or explore other options, you know? So it was a, I think it was an unusual case. Yes. So when, when you got noticed that you're, you know, you get this email and, and I've experienced this at least where it's like, oh, my God, yes, this is great. And then this kind of reality gravity hits you and you're like, all right, I got to get this done. So what was the <laughs> process of actually writing the thing once you got the proposal? Um, like how long did it take? Did you write in the morning? Did you just give up your life for a month? Did you have to cram in writing in between being an undergrad? Like what was that whole thing? Well, I was in the middle of a, I think it was in February. So I was like a month into a semester and I was just not feeling school at the time. And so I, (laughs) I just kind of, I think I ended up dropping all those classes pretty much. Um, and which is, gosh, looking back, it's like, I'm so embarrassed of that in a way, (laughs) but, um, but I was just so excited and I felt like, you know, this is in my mind, I was thinking, this this is what I'm going to school for, you know. What? Why am yeah. I wasting time going to classes? You know, I yeah, want to do you. this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So, 
Uh, <clears throat> yeah. So anyway, it was. Um, it was mostly hanging out in the library. Uh, I was fortunate that the, the my undergrad school had a, just an enormous, enormous six-story library that was the size of like each floor was at the size of like several football fields. You know, oh my goodness! Wow. It, it's yeah, it's usually in the the top five of the Princeton Review uh, for libraries, and um, I think that's one of the only categories where it's in the top <laughs> top ten. Um, but um, so it was just, it was really great to have all, basically, every single sig- significant herpetological book in one place at the time. Of course, nowadays, I think most of that stuff's just available online. But, I mean, there, yeah. I guess there's probably a lot of print books, too, that just, you know, don't quite make it into an ebook form or something mm-hmm. as well. But um, that was, so I spent a lot of, like, weekends and stuff working on that. Um, and I... I was at the time I was offered like a, um, a summertime job that would have paid me, I think like probably $70,000 for the summer just to train some other guys. Um, and I passed that up, um, probably stupidly (laughs) for the chance chance to finish this book. So for better, for worse, that's what I did. Very good. So what, what I, what I found when I wrote uh, uh, my book is that, you know, I got done writing and I was like, woohoo, I'm done. And that was like the most naive statement I've ever made in my entire existence <laughs> because I, I didn't take into account the fact that whether we like it or not, there's herpetoculture peeps that want a book because they want to read the words. And then there's the other people that want to see a whole lot of pretty pictures. Mm-hmm. And it took me almost as much time to get all the pictures as it did to get the writing done. Now, now the only issue with mine is that I decided to write a book on South American snakes and I've never stepped foot in South America. So there was that. Um, And I couldn't really take my own pictures. Um, But what was the process? Now I know to ask this question. I I know that quite a few of the photographs are your own, but um, did did you have any issues getting photographs? Or was that a relatively straightforward process? Because you knew the Bodratophis people. So you just knew who to go to ask to get the pictures. Like, what was the part of writing the book that you were kind of like, huh, didn't anticipate this being a time sink, but it is. <laughs> or was yeah, there? Yeah, <laughs> it, it was. Yeah, I mean, um, it. I think the interesting things about like, surrounding that were that there were a lot of interesting things that happened at the time. There were, there were people who had um, – hatched out several twins in that species that year. And there were, um, the, the year that, that I was working on it and there were, and so there was able, I was able to get photos of, uh, just interesting things that were going on with the species. And this is kind of the end of the time when people were still doing ecological studies on transpecos rat snakes. So mm-hmm. I was able to talk to, uh, academics about them. And then I, I think just attending some of the things like, like you mentioned before, like IHS in Texas, um, and uh, the East Texas Herpetological Society meetings. I was able to meet people like Troy Hibbets, Michael Price. Back there used to be a West Texas Herpetological Society. Michael Price, who's written a few books for Eco, mm-hmm. um, uh, used to be the president. Um, and uh, and he had advertised on the West Texas Herp Society's uh, page, you know, a, a uh, captive bred uh, offspring. 
uh, classifieds, and he had six localities of trans-Pecos rattlesnakes that he had listed on his <laughs> on his uh, and no photos or anything like that. It was just, but I was just drooling, you know, about the possibilities <laughs> of what that what must have been like. Because back then, I think he was probably one of the only people who were breeding localities, different localities of trans-Pecos rat snakes. Um, so, yeah, I think just, just kind of mixing with the uh, the hurt folks in Texas back then led me to the right folks to get interesting photographs. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. Okay. So, the book's done, start to finish. How long do you think that process took? Just for our listeners to know. I was, I think, hmm, I have been working on it for about a year of my spare time, at least a year and a half, probably from 2004, 2005-ish until early 2007. So maybe a little more than two years now that I think about it harder. Um, And then at that point, that's when I got the green light from Bob Ashley, and that was February I'm trying to remember how many words I had written at that point. It was maybe two or three chapters, uh, tops. Um, uh, but I finished it. So that was mid-February. I finished it December 15th, 2007. <laughs> yeah. That's that's when Russ Gurley and I sent off the proofs to, you know, it's, it was in their hands at that point. Oh, uh, yes. Um, yeah. Yes. So a, a good three years, maybe. Okay. And in the end, were you happy with the product? Yeah, it was just, I mean, what was so mind-blowing was getting the boxes in the mail from China that are just wrapped in the brown paper, you know. I mean, Mm -hmm. there's a a movie about Beatrix Potter, you know, from the 1900s who wrote the – the Peter Rabbit books, you know, mm-hmm. and it, it's the same thing when she gets her books, they're wrapped in that sort of that brown um, parcel paper, you know, and there's, and there's these bundles of her books and it's just like, I mean, for me seeing, seeing that as like porn, you know, <laughs> it's, just like, <laughs> it's just, it's so like, you know, this is this thing that you created here. It is, you know, off the, literally off a boat from a slow boat from China, you know, mm-hmm. and, uh, um, and you know, and it, those books they have really beautiful glossy pages, and mm-hmm. um, uh, so I, you know I was proud to be a part of it. You, you talked about some of the other series uh, books mm-hmm. in that series, and um, the the complete conjo was kind of my model for. Yep, that's a good one. Yeah, Greg, he nailed it in there. So. Yeah, uh, but yeah, I was pleased with it. Uh, one of the things I, I, I guess I was proud of in a way was that bibliography was done differently. It was kind of modeled like a lot of the websites that you would see uh, at the time of people having different morphs of species, and they would just show a little color swatch of the back of one of those critters. And, uh, mm-hmm. and so uh, the bibliography in my book, I never seen anybody do this before or since, um, but it, the book is actually about four different rat snakes. It's it's yeah. got mm-hmm. you know, yep. uh, desert uh, rat snakes, which is you know Bogartopus, and then that's two species, and then the green rat snakes, Centicolis, and Barrage rat snakes, Pantheropus baridae. Um 
And so I wanted for people to be able to go and, and find those other sources um, and kind of be able to find out what I, what I had read if they needed to, but do it in an organized way so that they can just flip to the back of the book and go, okay, there's, these are all the Trans-Pecos sources. These are all the Bairdi sources, uh, et cetera. Um, but that was cool. That was, it was cool to see that because I had never seen anybody do that in a book before. And I don't, I don't know if anybody appreciates it, but I, I enjoyed seeing it, enjoyed doing it. Um, uh, I, I can appreciate it because I had about 300 sources in my bibliography. Yeah. And I loathed, hated, and detested my bib. So the mere fact that you were willing to <laughs> put forth that level of effort for the readers, yeah, you're a better man than me. <laughs> so, anyway. Yeah. All right, cool. So um, obviously the book, and I guess it is totally fair to say it isn't just uh, Bodrotophis, um, the Verdi and the Senecolis are in there as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but specific to the Subox, because that's what our listeners have asked for, if you don't mind, I'd like to segue into husbandry. So uh, Clint and I were talking before this episode, and <sighs> – there's a reason why we have you on to talk about subox because both Clint and I have managed to kill quite a few subox in our day. Mm-hmm. I have a handful of species that I have just said nope. Um, you, you get to a certain level and they just of of death, and you you learn that's not one for me. I think the issue that I have, and I could be wrong, and this is something I want to talk about because I know other people here in the East have made this statement, is that where I keep my snakes, it's just incredibly humid. Mm-hmm. Um, like, and and I understand they use microhabitats where they get humidity, but I'm talking like I made the switch over to Getula Kings, which pretty much are associated for the most part, Florida Kings, Eastern Kings with kind of humid, even subtropical in the case of Floridana. And, and those things have like taken off like you wouldn't believe, but everything I've ever tried to keep that's desert with the exception of Splendida desert Kings do really well where I'm at. Um, has just kind of they've thrived and then they've died. Like it's the weirdest yeah. thing yeah. in the world. Yeah. It's Same. not a like lingering thing. It's like, okay, this is the one that's gonna do. This is the one that's gonna make it. And then I, you know, look in the vivarium, pull the tub, and it's dead. So mm-hmm. and then you kind of get that kick to the gut and you're like, damn it. And the last time I was like, okay, I'm done. Uh but I'd like to kind of cover husbandry. I'd like to cover if you have an idea of what the hell's happening in that situation, so our listeners could that may have experienced the same thing uh, could maybe get some insight. But um, as, as far as husbandry, what we normally do on the show is we kind of have this standard outline and we kind of go point by point by point. So the, the first thing I want to talk about is just enclosure type and size. Like, what do you recommend somebody keep one of these things, one, one of these snakes in? Um and, and just kind of go where the conversation leads you. All right. Um, I think, I, I think the kind of, the kind of um, gold standard that I think mm-hmm. I try to strive for is keeping herps in outdoor enclosures. If you can, if they're, especially if they're diurnal, um, but also because you can keep uh, the native plants and, you know, it's yeah. getting actual access to sonlight. Have you ever been to the uh, Arizona Sonora Desert Museum? Or Absolutely have. Uh, it's yeah. fantastic. 
Yeah, mm-hmm. and so they have a lot of that. The Living Desert in Carlsbad, New Mexico, also has some of that, and uh, and so everything in the zoos are just pure native stuff, native plants, native animals. Um, and so I, I think that should be kind of you should be trying to mimic that as best you can. And uh, mm-hmm. but um, you know, like a, a lot of herpticulturists, I just kept most of mine in racks. Um, and yeah. also kept them in terraria as well. I think they appreciate a a, ter- a terrarium that somewhat does mimic their um, natural environment, having rock walls and that kind of thing. Um, <clears throat> and so I, I think that's probably the preferred way if you can. Uh, that said, there's people who've kept them in tanks and in, in racks for decades. So... Um, but, but essentially, go ahead. Oh no! Any particular size? Um. Yeah, I would say probably you want them to be at least um, the length of the snake, or maybe you know, eighty percent of the length of the snake, and and probably a good twenty eighteen to twenty four inches wide or so. Um. Height doesn't matter so much. I think the transpagus rat snakes are very thigmotactic or thigmotropic, meaning they like to be kind of snug, and mm-hmm. so um, they're they're kind of cavernous, bat eating bat snakes, really. <laughs> yeah, bat snakes. <laughs> and so uh, you know, you can imagine that this sort of fossorial you know, cave dwelling, almost golem like <laughs> existence in the Chihuahuan desert. They're in snug places all the time, and that's probably where they feel safest and, and most secure. Um, so I would keep a lot of things like, you know, cork bark slabs and, and that sort of thing, you know, kind of stacked up or um, and very narrow spaces for them to hide in. Oh, cool. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. I was going to say, what what system were you using specifically when you were keeping Gosh. so many? So uh, it's been a while since I've really been uh, thick in herpeticulture, but uh, I think it was Vision, Vision Racks. Mm-hmm. Y'all familiar with those? Yeah. yeah. So you yeah. were using a rack system at the time. Right? I, I was using rack systems. I had one home made out of plywood, uh, and then I had, you know, Six or seven from Vision, at least. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Good God. And then substrate. What was what was that looking like? Well, I was using shredded aspen, yeah. and um, you know back then. And then in the terrarium, I had just a sandy substrate on top of potting soil, and uh, and kept the. Uh, the hide box over the potting soil. So there's a nice, cool, damp ah, place sweet. that mimics kind of being underneath a rock. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and then sand over the hide box. So that, you know, you couldn't really see it cause the rocks were hidden. So you couldn't see his hide box. It was just underneath the, the rock wall on the back of the terrarium. But yeah, Aspen is, is generally what I would use shredded Aspen. I didn't like the shave stuff. I tried Carefresh. <laughs> yeah, I tried Carefresh. I tried who knows corn cob. Maybe no, I never did that awful stuff. Um, yeah. 
but yeah, that was that was my go-to. I literally get two pallets of shredded aspen delivered at a time. <laughs> yes. you, it's hard to find nowadays unless you're paying out the the wazoo for it. You know, for it, uh, it, it is a name. It is. I used to get like I think five. Four point three eight cubic foot mm-hmm. boxes, like at a time, delivering. It like, looked like I was, you know, had an IKEA delivery or something on my porch, <laughs> you know, every single time. Um, but it is getting much harder to find now, and I think I was getting free shipping on, you know, spending over fifty dollars. It was just ridiculous how cheap that stuff was about ten yep. years ago. Yep. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's um, not cheap now. <laughs> yeah, I would put sphagnum moss though. I would I would um, put that stuff under the uh, under the hideaways, and and that way I could just mist inside of there, and it would just uh, you know keep a slightly more humid environment without getting the aspen all soggy because you don't want that because that stuff gets stale. And I was yeah. doing the same thing for quite a while, but I still. I felt like just even that bit of humidity escaping into the enclosure is causing me a problem. Now, I mean, I've looked and the average humidity here is 70 percent. So, I mean, I'm like, that's got to be my issue and we'll go more into humidity then. But I I wanted to know if you did do something like that, because I remember in the book you talked about like when they're shedding, they'll – kind of wedge themselves down in these crevices that are holding moisture and that's where they get it. So, uh, you know, I would try to do that during, um, you know, any molting, but, uh, um, you know, I just, that was one fear I had was maybe this is causing, you know, an, another spike in humidity by me giving them a, a humid hide. Right. So. You just don't know what, you just don't know what's, what's <laughs> yeah, going on. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, so I, I well, I lived in Utah when I was keeping most of mine, and so I, humidity wasn't an issue. So it was just like <laughs> the water bowls yeah. would be dry in like five days, yes. you know, uh, if you didn't, if you went on on trip or something. Yeah, for um, those who aren't familiar with Utah, I rem- when I would travel out there for work, I'd get nosebleeds just because of how dry it was. And that coming from you know being used to seventy percent to you know nothing. And, yeah, 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 yeah. It's definitely dry out there. Yeah, nose be yeah, cracked lips, the whole nine mm-hmm. yards. Yeah, yeah. So on on the subject of humidity, we can just dial right in. Do you do you have an opinion? Because I know my, you know, we oftentimes talk about on the podcast. You you have a, a you have animals and they live in a habitat. So we'll say like a deciduous forest um, or a desert. Uh, but within that habitat, we have macro and micro habitats, and the. There are micro habitats where they're going to be picking up some moisture where it can get kind of locked in and doesn't evaporate out. But even within the micro habitats where they're picking up the moisture, the background humidity level is going to be different than than a micro habitat in eastern North America, which might be a be xeric and not have that much humidity. Uh, but at the same time, if it's always 60, 70 percent humid outside and during the activity period of the snake, that's the humidity that's always getting. So. Do you think Clint and I are on to something with the humidity levels here in the east being an issue? Or is, because there's people in the east that have absolutely kept these things mm-hmm. alive and bred them and maintained them. And, and that was just a point of discussion that I thought was worth having. Just because we, we also talk a lot about folklore husbandry and husbandry where we're just kind of like spitting into the wind and then turning it into fact. And we don't necessarily want to do that. So mm-hmm. I was curious mm-hmm. if you had... Any thoughts as to 
what what it might have been. Maybe it's not humidity. Maybe it's more airflow and stagnation of air. Like I, I don't, I don't know. Yeah, I, I do think humidity isn't so much the issue, and, and it's a, a a guess, but I think it's an educated guess, possibly, uh, uh, because they have a species of tick in the wild. Yeah. Uh, they're all species yeah. of tick. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It used to be called Aptonoma elephensis. I don't know if it still has the same genus. It might have been, you know, uh, subtracted or added to another genus or yeah. something. But um, but elephensis meaning endemic to Alephi. Yeah, <laughs> because when the that's tick, awesome. when the tick when the tick was named, it was Alephi subocularis, <laughs> mm-hmm. and so uh, and so this tick was named after its host, the Transpecos rat snake. And um, there was a herpet- herpetologist in uh, New Mexico, and he worked in Big Bend, and he was in Carl uh, uh, Caulfield's book, the, the Keeper and the Kept, when mm-hmm. he visited. He was the, one of the park naturalists at, in Big Bend National Park in the 1950s. Uh, but I met him in 2010, around there, um, uh, when, I, when I was able to go out and meet the folks at the New Mexico Herpetological Society in Albuquerque. But he, uh, William Degenhart was his name, and he uh, uh, studied the the biology of this, uh, the life cycle of this tick. Um, but anyway, this this tick it needs to live in a fairly humid microenvironment in order to complete its li- life cycle, in order to even hatch its own eggs, and so um, and so that's why I believe. My, Humidity isn't probably isn't that much of an issue because transpicus rat snakes are in their microhabitat habitat probably most of the time, and so that place is probably very humid under those uh, inside some of those caves and and under the, the boulders and other things that they sleep under in the desert, um, and uh, and so I think it's more of a, um, a ventilation issue a lot of times. And so just a guess, you know, I don't know yep. if anybody's ver- verified this. J- uh, John Rossi, who I, may still be a veterinarian, um, I, don't, I don't know, but he he had written some books on keeping snakes of the United States in, in yep. Canada. Yes, and uh, he one of those one of his statements in his book was that the number one cause of death among captive snakes is lack of ventilation and bacteria that build up from that in a captive environment. And so I, I just, I think I've seen that happen. It's happened to myself as well. I've uh, killed off a few transpicus rat snakes, um, keeping them. Um, oddly enough, it seemed to happen during uh, brumation mm-hmm. more than, more than other times. Um, when it, when it was even, you know, typically drier in the, in the winter. But I, I do think ventilation, John Rossi may have been onto something there, that uh, you, you want to keep the air free-flowing uh, and keep the macro environment, maybe at least air-conditioned if you can, because air conditioning, air conditioners pull water out of the air. And so, uh, yeah, I think, I think that's possibly the, inf- the issue in some of the cases is ventilation. I think that would make sense. I mean, that's actually something we've discussed before, Zach, mm-hmm. is um, ventilation. I mean, 
Um, I remember saying that that was uh, there was a particular season I increased my ventilation by like eight hundred percent, and in all of my uh, <laughs> my tubs just went crazy with the uh, the air holes because I, I kind of thought the same thing. And I think you mentioned um, there was what a latissinctus that had uh, passed away with some mm-hmm. kind of fungal growth had in the a lung. Fungal fung- yep. Yep. Yeah, and I think that's probably true, and that's really, I guess we could say that about most species in general, even the ones that do want yeah. the high humidity, that that airflow is incredibly important, um, you know, making sure that it doesn't get too stagnant. Do you think maybe that subox are a little more sensitive to some of that? It does make me wonder because they're not a, I wouldn't call them a generalist, you know, mm-hmm. uh, they are the common name for Bogertopus is um, not Bogert's snake, but desert rat snake. And so they are a desert specialist, which is weird because their closest living relative is a tropical rat snake. And um, the Pseudolaphy, um, which oh. which is very similar body plan to a Transpecos rat snake and a, and a Baja rat snake. Mm-hmm. Um, they have the big bulbous eyes, yep. this long slender neck, very kind of placid, very curious, not aggressive sort of dispositions. They eat, they hang out in caves and eat a lot of bats um, in Mexico and other parts of Central America. Um, very similar. And they even have a weird number of chromosomes, which just like the transpagos rat snakes. And so, um, but uh yeah, did that answer the question? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, yeah. Like I said, yeah. some of this, I think it's you know maybe we don't answer the question. We we are tossing up some ideas and theories, you yeah. know. And it, you know, I, I guess it's if we all think it's a plausible theory, it's something to to, to go, yeah, to <laughs> and, and to go and, and try, you know, mm-hmm. um, because it's certainly I think for me personally, I've struggled more with desert species than any other. Uh, I mean, whether it be tropical or temperate, but uh, the desert seemed to to be, I mean, rosies, you know, had a little bit of issue there, subox, a little bit of issue. Uh, mm-hmm. In the past, issues with gray bands, but everything seems to be going better with them now. Um, and, but mm-hmm. bairds are now in the collection, too. So it's kind of like I've got this idea where I'm moving out all the holdbacks. We had a holdback room moving all my holdbacks out and going to create a desert room in there where I actually run a dehumidifier, you know, all, you know, all the time and just mm-hmm. try so you know, keep, it's like we were talking about, you know, in another episode, um, Zach, just about that nuance and making yep. these little shifts constantly to try to fine tune, you know, for the species that we're working with. So, um, but yeah, okay. Airflow. Mm-hmm. That's, that's a good one. I did just before we move past the humidity piece, um, because I know that this is another one of those things where you see, well, so many keepers do this or don't do that. How did you handle your water with them? Did you leave water in all the time? Did you have a little small you know, bowl? Did you have a decent sized bowl? What was your water situation? I did. I, I had water in with them all the time. Um, it, it was kind of funny because in my book, I, I had quoted uh, um, Gerald Merker's article on transpecos rat snakes in the vivarium but at the time i didn't know it was it was uh, gerald Merker because he had written under his pseudonym thurgis cranston and he said that he left he did not offer them water at all and so i was just i was just like you know i'd 
I had seen after the water bowl would go dry, you know, if I forgot to fill them up mm-hmm. because they would go dry and within four to five days in Utah, mm-hmm. um, you put water in there and they would just, they would just really go at it and drink like fish, you know? <laughs> and so, uh, yeah. and so uh, the idea of not giving them any water ever, um, uh, seemed almost cruel. <laughs> and so, um, but I would just make sure I used small, sturdy dishes. I always bought like this, the little blue lined in the middle and tan on yep. the outside, yep. ceramic water dishes, you know, and, uh, and, <clears throat> and just left them in there with them all the time. And then I always had a humid hideaway as well, um, especially for the egg layers. <laughs> mm-hmm. But, um, but any, all, any of the adults, I would, I would keep those, uh, um, hide, I would call them humid hideaways or something like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, uh, just usually sphagnum filled containers of some sort. Cool. And well, and then as far as thermal gradients and, 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 and temperatures and, and things of that nature, kind of what was your strategy there? Room temperature or slightly you know, cooler on the cool side and, um, uh, under tank heat, uh, with, mid to high 80s low 90s on the on the warm side and uh, and so i would use you know under tank or, um heating tape or actually with the vision with the vision i would you would use those little heating co- uh, coils yeah. or whatever yeah and so and you know use connected to a thermostat but uh, with a night drop typically um but yeah, just uh, probably what would be considered our body temperature on the warm side, mm-hmm. and then just room temperature or so on the on the the cool side, and give them a gradient, a long gradient, um, uh, to where they can stay, remain hidden the whole time, and choose their temperature underneath. I think that's a key. That's cool. Uh, with keeping them from regurgitating as much. That was, mm-hmm. there was some research or something that came out at the time about that, about the chronic regurgitation syndrome, CRS and snakes. And, um, Don Soderberg, who wrote the, the corn snake book for eco, uh, uh, would swear by it when in private conversations between him and myself, he would talk about how having long hideaways where they can stay hidden Snakes can remain feeling secure, but but can choose their temperature without having to compromise uh, their sense of security was key. And so I tried to do that as much as I could. Cool. Can you talk a little bit uh, before we move past about subak regurgitation, different things that you think may cause it, um, how you handled it when it would occur? Uh, and of course, this is probably going to apply to most colubrids, but you know, since that can be an issue with subox, um, you know, if we can touch touch on that a little bit. Sure, I I don't I I never really had a big problem a big issue so much with transpecos rat snakes regurging. I had a big issue with as did a lot of people with their kissing cousins Baja California rat snakes regurgitating, mm-hmm. and um, I. Um, Elliot Jacobson, who was a, I'm sure who you know or know yeah. of, he was a, yeah, a retired veterinarian 
and professor at University of Florida and big time reptile medicine guru. He um, he told me that uh, it was some sort of reaction in their stomach, some kind of uh, um, inflammation of their stomach that would happen after they would eat mice. He thought it might have been – he didn't know what was the cause, but he thought it might have been um, – maybe a, a reaction to mammal fur or something. <laughs> I mean, who, the thing is, who knows what young yeah. Baja California rat right. snakes eat in the wild? You know, we have no idea, you know? So, um, it's possible that they're lizard specialists or that they're bat specialists. I mean, I don't know. You would think there wouldn't be much of a difference between bats and mice as far as any, you know, any kind of chemical reaction, but who knows? And so, and there, there might be other things. There might be um, uh, gut flora that they get from their natural environment that's the, that they're dependent on in the wild in order to uh, uh, have a, a, a good, you know, strong flora and, and be able to digest their food properly. Maybe that's missing in captivity. You know, there's so many unknowns. And so... Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, with with regurgitating and, and transpicus rat snakes, never had too much of an issue there. Uh, one thing I, I would do when I did have an issue is I would use like Benabac or some kind of a probiotic after the fact. That really helped with gray banded king snakes. I I found um, if I ever had regurgitants in, in gray bands, Benabac would just kind of fix that up, and they would they would stop puking. How would you um, administer that? It was a gel. And I would just put it, just dot it on the back of the the mouse's neck, and uh, and that was it. Um, and <laughs> that's cool. Yeah, this yeah. is interesting. It's because, and I can't wait to tell uh, our animal uh, animal care specialist here that takes care of the the majority of the collection because. For years, that's something that he has said. I, I wish somebody would do a, a kind of a, a study on this where he talks about probiotics for snakes that have regurged to get that flora back in there and, you know, get that built back up. So, I, you know, I, I'm looking forward to being able to tell him tomorrow it came up, <laughs> you know, it, <laughs> yeah, yeah. it came up. Yeah. Um, and uh, the other thing I'll say about that is um, something that seemed to help with the Bajas um, was there was – Connie Hurley, are you familiar with her, veterinarian? She used to breed corn snakes. Um, well, <clears throat> I think her, I think it's her husband, Charles Pritzel, who wrote the Corn Snake Genetics Guide. Um, I think they're both veterinarians. Anyways, she did a, a research study uh, looking at um, the rate of growth of hatchling corn snakes, um, taking their, their prey, frozen, thawed, pinky mice, and some of them she would leave uncut on the skin. Oh, I know Others, this study. Yes. You do it? Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. So she, she would cut, you know, one time or two or three or four times in different places on the body. And the more times that she cut the skin, it was because skin, her hypothesis was skin was acting like a, a barrier to digestion for these young snakes. And so... Uh, if she thought if she cut the skins up a little bit before offering them, that they would be able to uh, exhibit less CRS or chronic regurgitation syndrome and also grow faster. And so, and it turned out that she was right. 
Um, so I started doing that as well. And this is pretty grotesque, but I, <laughs> I got, I got lazy and I would, instead of just, you know, grabbing something to cut the skin, which, you know, there's wash up included there too, but uh, you could, you can just, with your fingers, just lightly tear, tear this skin. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. It's not very difficult. Um, and I would do that and whether it helped or not, I don't know, but it didn't seem to hurt. <clears throat> That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. Some, some yes, I know here. our good friend Justin Smith, um, who I know listens to the show. So here's your shout out on CCR, bud. Um, <laughs> he swears by that. Uh, he, he just put up a little reel about it, actually. So in the paper. So very cool. So, so since we're on the, the subject of feeding, uh, I never knew, like, I. I I always felt like I might be feeding them too much. Um, and I was feeding them like once every two weeks or, or something to that effect. What was your feeding rate? I was just trying to think about you know, the animals out in nature and, and their encountering prey and the specialization of the habitat and everything. And what's my what your deal? <laughs> well, back then, I think I was, I think I, I, didn't know as much as I, I think I know now. And uh, <laughs> well, <laughs> I think that was maybe awesome. completely, yeah. <laughs> I may be completely off still, but like I, I, I tend to think that in nature snakes um, are probably eating more often and different variety of things than what we give them in captivity. I think they, I mean, it's kind of like, you know, we often, if you've ever had to, um, help a dog, you know, give birth or something like that. You know, like we, we do all this reading and prep beforehand and stuff, you know, and, but the dog knows what to do, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it really mm-hmm. doesn't need us there, you know? And so many people have talked about that, you know, that the dog kind of looks up after she's, you know, uh, birthed her litter. She's like, what are you doing here? Kind of look, you know? Mm-hmm. And I, I feel like snakes, they know how to utilize their environment um, and and find all the little places that have the right temperature and the right humidity and all of that so that they can maximize their life and and uh, their consumption of it. And so um, I, I tend to think that they're probably eating, you know, maybe as many as two or three times in a week in the wild, given the right um, and given the right environment and the right opportunities. Um, in captivity, you know, we, 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 we bring them into a, almost a constant, uh, sameness, you know, a homogeneity of of conditions. And we try to offer them choices and try to offer them, uh, a variety of different comforts. And, uh, but I think we, we, we bring that bandwidth in and and shrink it a lot and say, this is your range now. Mm-hmm. And uh, and make them choose within that narrow that narrow uh, range, and so I think that they're probably eating less in captivity, even though they're they're probably more obese in captivity, but they're eating less in captivity or less frequently, and pro- perhaps than they are in the wild. But that's just I don't know if that's been studied either. So it's just a guess. Well, and it would go to I mean you know them being more obese. It's not only if they're eating more, they're also moving to go get that prey. 
Right. There's much bigger haunts. There's, you know, they're burning the calories. They're they're getting the enrichment. So it's they're healthier, you know, when it comes yeah. to that activity. You know, they may not be healthier from a let's say a parasite load or let's say, you know, different things of that nature, but um makes complete sense. You know, and that's something that we will never be able to fully replicate no. replicate in captivity is the variety yeah. of what they get in the wild, you know, and all mm-hmm. the uh, the extra pieces that that come with direct sunlight that come with you know the the minerals that because it's not just what they ate but it's what they ate ate you know what I mean yeah. so it's yeah. it's all yeah. of that you know that that comes yeah. through so right um, you know excellent point <clears throat> very very cool so then your your frequency would have been once a week or I would say once a week once a week because I like I was saying at one point for a year or two I was working for Dan and Colette Sutherland and, uh, and I would come home with, they bred mice, you know, in one of their warehouses. And so I would come home with live mice every, every week on the same day. And so, yeah. And they were really well fed at that point. I mean, they were very, my females were very healthy and dropping very large clutches. I mean, not record breaking, but, um, they would have been record breaking like a year or two before that, before, before I was kind of gathering all this data. So, yeah. Very, very cool. Yeah. So then, with um, neonates that you know, a hatchling uh, or hatchling to six months old or a year old, are you? Is that still a once a week feeding, or would you up because of the growth potential? Um, were you a slow grower? What, what do you? There's all these different strategies people are kind of discussing currently about the baby colubrids and, and growth. Uh, what was your approach with your neonate subox? I was variable. I wasn't. I didn't stick to a a strict schedule, but I I think I would vary it more frequently between three to five or three to seven days. Okay, uh, every three. Yeah, and um, yeah, yeah. That's that's what I would strive to do. Um, I, I found that if you fed them fewer than every seven to 12 days or so that they would not gain ground as well uh, Mm -hmm. in growth. Um, So I think, you know, three to five days, probably four days is probably a good sweet spot if you're keeping Mm -hmm. their temperatures in their warm active season. Very cool. For young ones. Yeah. But they're very big babies for a colubrid. They are. In that that tribe. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, The... That that belly looks pretty big on them, you know, when they come out of that egg. You know, and it's funny too. It, it seems to me that they, it, it's almost like a human child when they they come out this little portly thing and then they thin yeah. out a little bit yeah. over that first year. Uh-huh. You know, it, even if you're you're pumping them, whatever they they still they, they just don't seem quite as thick after about three months. It's they're longer. You know, it just it, I don't. Know, it could be off, but that's how they appear to me. Yeah. No, I, I I was good at growing them. I could do that. It was just once once they were adults, I I would get lulled into this. Okay, finally, and then boom, they're dead. And now after talking, mm. probably wasn't the humidity. It was probably the, the ventilation because that was one of the big things I changed. Ironically, after I moved the boat the subox out of the collection was I went to um, the racks that I have. Uh, I went to the sea serpent racks that are open 
Uh, and then I put ventilation holes just everywhere. And then I have a fan that runs in the room all the time, just moving air. And mm-hmm. I did notice that like all of a lot of the problems I was having with flies and things like that, they all just kind of went away mm-hmm. and, Damn it, Dusty. Now I'm going to have to try this again. It's funny because I'm sitting here thinking, like, I've got Subox now. You know, we're still working. With, I've, I've had a mediocre success is what I would mm-hmm. say. You know what I mean? I have success, but I experience a, kind of what you are, too, where if I lose one, it's an adult. You know, it's, yeah. it's the babies are good. Um, but as we're talking about this, I'm sitting here thinking, okay. How am I going to piss Steve off this week by saying, here's everything I want you to do now? Yeah. You know, it's, I, I want more air holes. I want fans. I want, you know, all this to try to ensure that, uh, you know, because as, as, as I said, as we continue to now work with more and grow the quote unquote desert species, then it's, well, we've got to dial it in. And I think that the airflow is definitely, you know, something that we've got to get a better handle on. Uh, here at the facility for for those particular animals, but it still rings true as we said for all of them. You know, it's how do we keep this air moving and, and keeping it from getting stagnant. So, so yeah, yeah, my brain's the same way. It's like okay, probiotics. I'm sitting here. I'm going to have to go back and listen to this to write down exactly what it, you said you were using. See if I can Google that and find that shit. So it's you know <laughs> things like that. So yeah, well, you know, I will say that of the longevity records for the species. It seemed like most of those were in zoo type in, enclosures. Mm-hmm. Very and open. So they very yeah. open, very open. Yeah. So some some of them were twenty seven years or so that in captivity in a zoo, and uh, one of them at the Fort Worth Zoo, and um, and so yeah, on display and you know access to natural lighting and uh, so you know who knows. Yeah, I, 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 I do tend to think that there's something to it. You know, Don Soderberg had uh, me put um, because I had an issue. I did have an issue early on when I was living in Houston in my early 20s, keeping these, and uh, uh, and so humid there. I mean, we got that's a swamp. You know, <laughs> yeah, we don't have transbagos rat snakes in Houston. We have, <laughs> we have American alligators. You know, yeah, right? <laughs> and so. Um, and so, yeah, I, he had me put uh, rock salt in uh, deli cups with the lid shut and everything with the holes punched. And he, as a way to kind of pull humidity out of the enclosure and just put that inside the enclosure. I don't know. It seemed to have helped. It seemed to have helped. So, you know, I don't know. Whatever way you can dehumidify the macro environment. Mm-hmm. I think so. Rock think salts in a deli with hole punches. <laughs> yeah. Okay. He, he was like, "This will pull humidity out of the air." So I did. Herpers yeah. and potheads—the things that they can come up with. <laughs> I tell you, I, I mean, it's, it's brilliant. You know? <laughs> the ingenuity—I love it. <laughs> Good God. Okay. So, so we, we we we've covered pretty much husbandry. We've covered feeding regime, all that kind of stuff. Let's. Just dive right into breeding, yeah. Because um, obviously, if you produce clutches that were near records, it, you were you you were successful with that. Um, mine didn't live long enough to get to that point, unfortunately. Uh, mm. Have you produced any subox, Clint? Oh yeah, yeah. Okay, We've cool. Produced cool. Several. In fact, uh, one of the things I think we were both discussing uh, on a recent post 
it seemed like for so long that no one was hitting a uh, river road snow. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. River road line <laughs> snow. And I've got one. I produced it this year. Oh, uh, wow. So How cool. I, I was shooting for a blonde river road snow, mm-hmm. but uh, I, I didn't hit the blonde, but I got the river road. I'd, I'd love to get one of those one day, the river road snow. It's one of those I'm, ones. I don't keep any Trans-Pecos Dress Nicks anymore. I've got a few out on loan, but um, uh, the snow, I've been dreaming. I, I've been having like, you know, visions of those for like the past 20 years, yeah. you know. Well, my first so. snows, my uh, the Euro line or whatever we want to call it, came from you. Yeah. I, I remember getting mm-hmm. those from you uh, hey, years, wow. and years back. <laughs> yeah, it's been a while. Yeah. Um, very, very cool. But so, yeah. well. so with breeding, uh, what was your approach? Like, like starting with going into the fall, I'm assuming there's a brumation. Maybe there isn't a brumation. I didn't get to that point, so I don't know. <laughs> but um, uh, and then if you do something different, Clint, you might as well throw it in there since Dusty was in the West and you're in the East, East-ish. So anyway, yeah. For me, it was easy. For me, it was mm-hmm. easy. I would just um, because Utah winters were cold, I would just open the window of the snake room and put a a dark curtain or blanket or something over <laughs> to douse the light coming in, and the room stayed about fifty-five. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, for about, and I, I wouldn't do it long because like we'd mentioned before, I'd, I'd lost more, at least one, one or two snakes in the winter. And, uh, and so, um, my gut feeling was that this is hardwired into their genome, um, to, to seasonally start producing their gametes, um, when there's, when there's a winter change, but, I don't necessarily think that they need winter, (laughs) you know, I mean, it's, it's kind of a hardship if you think about it. And so, um, um, and so I think if there's ways to kind of mitigate the hardship, but still give them the environmental cues, you're maybe you're onto something. Um, and, uh, and so I wouldn't do them for the, you know, a lot of other people are keeping them three or four or five months in mating. Um, and I would do, I think six weeks. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I go anywhere between like six at the most twelve, and that yeah. really just kind of depends on what I've got going on. <laughs> and if I'm mm-hmm. ready to feed hundreds yeah, of snakes yeah. again, you know, it's kind right. of right. But typically, I'm yeah. around that six to eight week mark. Usually, is about what I'm mm-hmm. doing. Okay, cool. yeah, similar. And, and just drop down to fifty five, reduced light level, classic North American recipe yep. for for breeding. That okay, was, that was it. Yeah. yeah. And then with the actual act of, of, of breeding and copulation, are they aggressive breeders? Do they secretly breed? Do you even know what's going on? Uh, like, what's going on on that front? Michael Price was fond of saying that subbucks were, were uh, um, prone to getting in little quickies while you're not looking, you know. Mm-hmm. But uh, I, I would typically see the males go after the females. <laughs> If I put them in after her shed, after her what second or third shed, I'd say yeah, at least the seconds yeah. where I'm starting. Yeah, and, um, and you know whether she tried to buck him off or, or whatever was her prerogative, but I would usually see the males at least go on for it. That's one important piece yeah. to kind of throw out there for everyone, Zach. Too is these are late breeders. These are yeah. not you know one shed and throw them together like the corns and kings. Mm-hmm. It's. Uh, I, it's at least the second shed for the female. That's when I think the pheromones are, are being released. And 
um, I start. But, you know, to Dusty's point, sometimes it's even the third. You know, it's they're just late. Wow. And it's also why – and this – I'm going to ship real quick just for like the market piece, you know, that people ask mm-hmm. about. It's why you won't often see um, a lot of sub – well, you don't see a lot of sub available in the first place. No. But you don't see them in June, July, even August like you do the majority of the colubrids. And what's funny is you don't usually see them even in like November, December. You know, they've hatched and they're ready, but then people aren't shipping, you know, and that. So they're not even putting them <laughs> up. And so, you know, it's – but understand if you're getting – like if, if in 24 you're getting a 23 baby – don't necessarily expect that to be a yearling size animal because it's a late 23, you know, whenever that thing hatched out. Um, I mean, I know I'm hatching those typically October, November, things like that, because they're so mm-hmm. late in the season to produce. Yeah, interesting. In fact, there was a there was a, uh, a hobby term for them that I heard going around called people were calling them Christmas rats. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. And, uh, you know, and, and then this kind of, I think (laughs) their, their availability and hatching as babies in captivity kind of models what we think is going on in the wild. And that is that, uh, um, when people are out visiting Transpecos or Chihuahuan habitat or big bend in that area and in early spring, April, uh, early May, uh, and finding baby Transpecos, um, they still have their umbilical scar. Mm-hmm. And wow. so it's, you know, and so those are usually gone within what, one or two sheds, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, yep. and so it's, it, it begs a lot of you know, some questions there. Are they overwintering, you know, are they, are they staying mm-hmm. inside their egg the way painted turtles do, you know, over winter mm-hmm. and, uh, and then hatching in the spring or are they hatching and then staying in the nest or what's going on there? But um, this seems to be especially true up in the higher elevations like the Davis Mountains and places like that. Very um, cool. Got a question for you, Dusty. Your yeah. one, I'll, um, I'll say, I've only seen one male ever start to go after a female. It's they. I, I'm with. Uh, I forget who you mentioned, but they seem to hide. You know, to breed for <laughs> me, they're they're secret little. Yeah. You know, uh, ninja locks, I guess. Ninja locks, but. Uh, um, <laughs> Males. One of the things that I, because I was noticing I was getting a higher number of uh, infertile eggs. And so I started to not warm my males to the same temp. Like I kept them, their hot spot lower longer than what I did the females. Like females, I went ahead and got up to the, you know, the higher 80s on their hot spot. But males, I was like, no, you're not getting higher than 82, you know, until after, you know, we've got some pairing. Um, is that something you've ever, you know, you noticed or, or saw or experienced? Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, Mike Murphy, um, mm-hmm. who breeds snakes in Florida, um, he's been keeping those subox for since the 90s, at least. Uh, he um, had a male that he was breeding to a female every year and for several years getting slugs. And, um, and he was keeping them in his garage in Florida. And so, as we know, in Florida, it's hot, even in the shade. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yes. so he, I told him, I was like, well, well, maybe try bringing them inside where you have air conditioning. And he said, but these are desert snakes. Don't they need to be hot? 
And uh, I was like, well, it's not hot underneath those inside those caves and underneath those boulders where they are most of the time, you know. And uh, and so so he did, and he got like a hundred percent fertility from that male <laughs> from then on. Um, so I I do think there is something to to that, and I um also kind of followed that same admonition and I would keep them on the lowest shelf in the rack. You know, I would keep my males in the lowest mm-hmm. part. And a lot of times I wouldn't um, even provide under tank heat. I would let them get a little bit of warmth from the heat above them, you know? <laughs> and so, yeah. uh, and you know, I didn't have any fertility issues. So this I think a, yeah. that's actually a move. I've, I, I shifted all of the colubrids in the rack systems to where now my males are on the lower levels. Females are on the higher levels with that exact train of thought. Because I figured, I mean, if range true for them, you know, it's got to – and I think that's also why when we talk a lot about the environmental cues that will trigger breeding, I while I know so many species will reproduce without the cooling period, I can't get myself out of the mindset of wanting to do that because I just feel this has got to be where the sperm really – matures and you know what i mean and it's mm-hmm. if we never put that cycle yeah there's still going to be some but is it going to be to the same degree are you still going to have the same you know vigor the you know all of that am i going to have the same success rates you know with, with everything um so you know, i don't know just throw that out there as another yeah topic. you know i i do think that they're phenotypically plastic in that way i and because um, like a, there's a bonus chapter, what I call it a bonus chapter in the book that was written by Dave and Tracy Barker, and it was about their method for breeding. And they didn't use brumation temps at all. They they kept the temperatures this more or less the same. I think they just cut off the the um, the heating elements, um, but they just basically kept them in a in a room temperature or slightly warmer um, reptile building. In, in the winter and they had really great success in the nineties uh, and two thousands when they were breeding a lot of albinos and silver blonde transpecus rat snakes mm-hmm. back in the day. Um, and, and there was even a kingsnake.com chat about this. Do you remember the old, the uh, chat yeah. week at kingsnake.com? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, um, and I, it's funny, I probably still have that chat like saved, like, you know, as a yeah. PDF somewhere. Yep. Um, because there was so much good info in that. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, yeah, I I think there's a lot of plasticity there. I think I think there's probably some places where transpecus rat snakes occur that they get fairly mild winters, and um, um, and so down in Mexico perhaps, um, and in those places, I'm guessing. I mean, I don't know, but uh, when you look at their closest relative, Baja California rat snakes, they which you could also call them a subock in a way because they have mm-hmm. this subocular row of scales mm-hmm. and very similar body plan as the transpecos rat snake, the big eyes, you know, yep. the long neck, the, the short tail, the whole nine yards. Um, but they occur all the way down to the, the tip of the Baja Peninsula where it definitely doesn't get cold winters, you know, and so yeah. they don't... And so I think there's probably, I don't know how much adaptation there is there in the wild, 
um, in those with regards to cold winters and our, or lack thereof and how similar that is to trans-pecos rat snakes. But, I mean, the closest model you have to that is the Baja California rat snake. And so, um, but I, but I see, I see why someone would be thinking that, um, uh, the winter or the brumal period is what, you know, helps them deform their gametes, you know, <laughs> because that's when it seems to happen. Yeah. No, wholeheartedly. All right. I'm on team Coulomb, but I also, for the first time ever, bred colubrids in the room that I ironically had them in the room this winter because I didn't want them to breed. But the male, this was uh, one of the Florida Kings, which, you know, Florida Kings, they don't really need to get that cold. And I'm in West Virginia, mm-hmm. so probably our version of cold is colder than what they get. Like our version of cold in my house is probably colder than they're actually getting <laughs> where they live. <laughs> that makes sense, but it yeah, was definitely yeah. enough to trigger uh, uh, brumation and, and and those guys. And meanwhile, out in the garage, I've got a million govies and can track in temperatures, trying to make sure I'm holding at fifty. And here, I just have these dumb things in a PVC, and they're just going to town. Uh, yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, so when 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 you get your clutch. Uh, what's incubation like? Um, anything special? Uh, what temps? What was the process there? How long do they incubate? You know, kind of all the above on that front. Very typical North American Lampro Peltonite colubrid incubation, you know, uh, protocols. It was, um, uh, I, with the exception being that I think they're, they're, um, Incubation tends to go maybe ten days longer than say a corn snake, mm-hmm. or, you know, Pantherophis, mm-hmm. um, or a lot of the others, uh, you know, uh, Pituophis and um, <clears throat> other members of that tribe. But uh, um, the other thing I'll say about incubation is they um, they probably benefit with drier um, water to vermiculite or, or medium mm-hmm. ratios than say some of the other more Eastern United Eastern U S rats, snakes, pantherophis, et cetera. Um, and I did have some cases in my very first cluster of transpagos rat snakes where some babies went full term with some very, very turgid full eggs that were full of water um, because I just kept that sphagnum moss so damp on top of the mm-hmm. vermiculite that I covered the eggs with that I, the babies doesn't, it doesn't look like they were able to get out of the shell. And, yeah. uh, and so they went yeah, full term. Yeah. And I mean, they had their pigment and everything. So it was like, they were so close to hatching and they mm-hmm. didn't. Um, and so, you know, Dave and Tracy Barker talk about that a little bit in their, uh, ball Python book. Um, the big one, uh, about that happening with ball pythons and what as well. So I think that's probably a across the board thing to be aware of with egg laying serpents. Yeah. With uh, the subox, well, 
with most of the colubrids, I'll use vermiculite and perlite kind of interchangeably, you know, like either one. I prefer perlite simply because vermiculite's so messy. You know, it looks like I got glitter all over me. <laughs> but uh, with the subox, I would tend to make sure that I was using perlite because I've noticed that even if you get perlite a little wetter than what you wanted it, that it, it drains down. And so mm-hmm. your the top layer of your perlite's always drier. And so for eggs, you know, of species like that, where I'm a little more concerned about the egg getting wet, perlite seems to work better for me so that I can still maintain humidity. But it's for some reason, it's still pulling a little bit of that humidity out of the egg because of the dryness of that top, you know, layer of the uh, yep. perlite. But just a yeah. kind of tip out there for everybody. It seems to, to help me out a little bit with that exact scenario. Cool. Very cool. And then I, I, we, we kind of talked about this. This is something I have a little bit of experience with, but getting the babies to start just pinks. Easy. Go from easy. there. Super easy, right? Easy. Just go for mice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just frozen right. thawed mice. Um, sometimes I'd have issues with females, especially or youngsters. If I moved them to an enclosure that was too large, too spacious. Mm-hmm. And like I said, they like mm-hmm. to be signaled. Thigmo tactic or thigmotropic, whatever word you want to use, but they like to have surfaces touching their body and feel like they're being held almost inside of their inside that's, of their micro environment. Cool. So if you, if they get away from that, they tend to get nervous. And they tend to search all over the enclosure and sometimes not eat. So interesting. Yeah. And so now we, we've kind of covered husbandry and all that. Let's get into the the phenotypes. Um, Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I do know that there are morphs, and I do know there are localities when it comes to subocularis. We don't necessarily have to do all of them, but it, do you have favorites amongst, uh, you know, within the within the species? Well, everybody knows that I'm a blonde transpagus wrestling nut. Yes, <laughs> that's kind of mm-hmm. that was kind of my gateway drug into transpagus wrestling. Was was uh, Gerald Merker's or. Thurgis Cranston's, excuse me, Thurgis uh, Cranston. <laughs> article in the Vivarium in 1992 or 93 about about these, and he had this, I mean, he had this pastel Easter egg yellow Christmas mountains male in there, and it's just like it just it just looks unreal how beautiful it is, you know. And it's got these gunmetal blue eyes that are huge, and it this against this beautiful just uh, pastel yellow chalky looking body, you know, and uh, probably the yellowest snake in the u.s you know and the fact that they tend to come if you if you get on if you look at the geology from satellite imagery you know on google earth or Mm -hmm. something like that and you zoom above texas well they the blondes come from the yellowest patch of rock that you can see (laughs) that's from from space you know in texas Mm -hmm. and so uh and they're a recessive mutation which is that's it gets into all kinds of cool stuff about um, adaptation in the wild, you know, and yeah. color matching possibly. And, uh, and, you know, and there's all kinds of cool stories about these being found gravid in the wild. And, and um, you know, maybe one in a dozen that you find in the area where you do find blondes is a blonde, you know, they're still inundated by the normal phenotype, the H patterned, the H snakes yeah. on all sides, North, South, East and West of that blonde range. But, uh, several gravid females have been found, and and um, they laid their eggs in captivity, and then 100% hatch would be uh, 
blondes. <laughs> so, so what is that? What's going on there? Blondes yeah. breeding with blondes, per, yeah, apparently. But like, why is that happening? If it is happening, there's there's a lot of cool questions there. It's just a cool place in general. If you've never been to Terlingua outside of Big Bend National Park, it's a ghost town there, and it's an interesting place. Uh, um, but yeah, I would say that, that was probably my favorite. I do. I always. Uh, when I first saw the silver blondes, I saw them when they were kind of brand new in uh, the late nineties, early two thousands. And blonde was already, like I said, just like, you know, better than porn. (laughs) Those pictures, you know, you're just like, Oh my God, that is just, it's just unreal. How does that exist in nature? It's just so beautiful. Um, But then somebody tells you, Oh, have you, have you heard of, have you seen a silver blonde? And I'm, your mind just goes, what? Silver blonde, you know? And so this is when they were brand new. And uh, Mike, uh, Mark and Kim Bell and uh, Reptile Industries in Florida were breeding some of the first ones. And um, and so those were really cool. And then it, what was weird is that there were silver blondes, which is a double recessive homozygous trait, before there were silver normals <laughs> in <Yeah>. captivity. <laughs> I actually hit silver blondes more often than I hit silver uh, normals whenever it comes to producing them. Yeah, um, and so yeah. yeah, and there's probably a good reason for that because there's there's uh, more, you know, whatever you call it, you know, recombinants or whatever in, in yeah. captivity with both of those genes because they started the silver started from to a, a clutch of blondes that it hatched, and so some of the sil- mm-hmm. some of the blondes that hatched out in a hundred percent clutch of blondes were silvers, and they kept getting them. And so it was just a hidden gene in captivity amongst some blondes. And, uh, and so people had to breed those to normals mm-hmm. to get double heterozygous and raise those up to get silver. So it was right. just like trying to like make snow, you know, but you had to go back and make the, uh, the simple, re- the, the single re- simple recessive mutation. Well, and I'll um, say if, if you're a listener that has not seen a silver blonde, Google it right now because those things are showstoppers. I mean, that that is a gorgeous, gorgeous animal. And they're still to this day. I mean, they've been out for, you know, however long. And if if I post one as available, it's gone within two days. You know, hands down, people still seek those because they are a gorgeous animal. Absolutely. Yeah, well, just uh... – very beautiful, very beautiful snakes, and and I think they've even been found in the wild. One or two of them have, you know, just also kind of a mind blowing wow. thing. Very cool. Well, two lines of albino, right? Yeah, at least two lines that I know of, and I, I believe that someone tried bre- breeding a, a heterozygous or you know a homozygous from one line to a heterozygous of another, and they did they got pure. Um, non-melanistic babies and so it looks like they're the, the alleles aren't lining up and they're right. uh, yeah, different lineages um <clears throat> yeah it's that, and it's the scale the you guys will know the proper term um <laughs> on the head the, that particular scale so weird the frontal the frontal scale yeah, yeah um it's so weird how that happens and apparently that's happened with the lineage of um albino um Western diamondback rattlesnakes as well. Hmm. Um, I'm missing the frontal scale. Oh, so cool. who knows? It's I, f- I forget what the word there is. It's a pleiotropy or something like that, genetics term. But it just means that a gene is linked to more than one trait, you know. And so, mm-hmm. um, but it's an interesting phenomenon for sure. 
Um, but yeah, essentially in, in transpagos stress snakes, you've got you've got the ones that lack the the melanin. You've got the albinos, and you've got two lineages of those. You've got at least one lineage of amerithrism or azanthism is what most people call it. Mm. And uh, but it's uh, uh, essentially the same thing. And um, and so you you're lacking the the yellows and oranges, and you've got a pure like silver and black mm-hmm. and animal and and then in the pattern world you've got either the h pattern or the the blondes now interesting thing from from my research as a graduate student um and it was kind of outside of my graduate work but it was just kind of an, a, a a pet project on the side you know but uh the the blondes are essentially just stripeless huh and and so we call them blondes but really what they are mechanically is they're just a stripeless transpecos rat snake and um interesting and what i think is what i think i know what i think i've discovered is that the h pattern ones the typical mutation that you see in the wild is actually a co-dominant mutation in the wild which is so cool because When when most kids, high school biology kids, are learning about what codominance is, they're usually learning about uh, blood types in humans, you know, which is such mm-hmm. an abstract concept. I mean, you could you could understand it, but it's like you can't really see it. You know, you can't yeah. see the chemicals and the, uh, you know, all this stuff, this this mm-hmm. microbiology. But you can definitely see what a, what an H on a transpecos rat snake looks like in your back, you know, in Texas, in the wild and, and see that that's a codominant trait of two stripes straddling saddles on the backs of these, of these snakes. And so it's a blonde is just a stripeless. And, um, and then in the last 10 years or so, a gentleman in the UK hatched, uh, some just by serendipity, some, um, striped transpecos rat snakes. Mm-hmm. Well, it turns out that uh, what I think it is going on there is that striped transpecos rat snakes are just blotchless transpecos rat snakes. <laughs> so, you, so both of these situations where you have a blonde and you have a striped, you just have a simple recessive, basically a lack of function against that codominant mutation that, that tends to be the, the, uh, the main phenotype you see in the wild, you know, and so you got stripeless and you got blotchless and what has happened when he's bred those together and, uh, is, is he's got patternless, um, transpecos rat snakes. So, I mean, that to me kind of proves it, you know, I mean, you could probably use a little bit more data, but, uh, um, I think that's a pretty cool example of, uh, uh, I'm getting an echo. Yeah. That was me. Sorry, I think I got it fixed. <laughs> <laughs> microphone unplugged. Yeah, yeah it, it's, it just seems like a cool example of what you can learn from breeding snakes that can it uh, provides fodder for what we know in biology and what we know in nature. You know, so yeah, no, very um, cool stuff. Yeah. There was actually, um, and I don't know if you'll remember this, Dusty, because it was in a Facebook group years ago. But I had produced a uh, subak that I thought was patternless. But it could have potentially been like a very high uh, form of blonde, 
um, because I posted some pictures of it. People were, you know, asking about it. And I remember that you had commented on that you thought that that was the same thing because I wasn't sure what the hell I had. And unfortunately, that was one that three years down the road, it did, you know, it had passed. So I never got to mm. uh, produce anything of it. But yeah, I had one that it wasn't a solid patternless, you know, it wasn't like that, but it, it looked about half of it, you know, the way yeah. the quarters of it really were patternless. So, and I've seen others like that in captivity. I've seen it. Yeah. I've seen others like that in captivity where, um, where it was, who knows what it was <laughs> because, because it, it had remnants of H's on it, but it's like, it's like the stripes were on a dimmer switch and their stripes were turned down, you know? <laughs> yeah. And so it's yeah. like, you're just getting a trickle of, um, expression um at that locus for the stripes and so it, it looks like it's could have like a blonde with just little faint stripes or an h pattern one with with really pronounced blotches and and uh um and i guess somewhat muted h's so um but it's, yeah, it's, cool. it's, it is really cool yeah yeah i like that stuff so speaking of nature we can we can kind of end with herping um, what do you? What is the conservation status of Transpecos rat snakes? Do you think we have a handle on that, or what? I mean, you've been in the field with these animals. Um, oftentimes, yeah. with snakes, they're they're very cryptic. <laughs> so, you know, I, I think that when we do census, and I'm not justifying collecting in any way. I'm not saying that, but I know, you know, I got my master's degree in herpetology. I studied. Mm-hmm. Eastern hognose snakes in West Virginia. I found one cool. after putting in a, all the graduate students and I, we collectively put in, I think it, the number of hours, person hours for that one snake was just embarrassing. <laughs> I think yeah. it was like 13,000. I'm not making that up because there were 11 wow. of us just. And then meanwhile, and you, I, I go out and uh, two years later, talk to a guy named Jared Kane who knows where they are. And in 45 minutes found two. <laughs> so yeah. you know what I'm saying. So I yeah yeah yeah. But I'm, I'm yeah. curious your thoughts on that on the conservation status. Yeah uh, yeah. Um, well, I think what I've noticed. Well, first of all, legally they are I think least concerned or something like that by mm-hmm. um, Texas Parks and Wildlife Department. I don't think I think they're kind of a similar uh, issue in New Mexico. I forget, um, but. Um, you can you can collect them in New Mexico. You can collect them in Texas, I believe, with just hunting licenses. You know, yeah. Um, but I will say, you know, Texas has more than ninety six percent of the land is is privately owned. <laughs> and yeah. So who kno- who knows what's going on out mm-hmm. there? I I do think though that um, that as areas start to get more people, sure. The, the Transpecos rat snake population does go down. It's not like Texas rat snakes where you we've probably got them here in my yard here and mm-hmm. um, in DFW, you know. And so um, it's not like that. I don't think with Transpecos rat snakes. I think, and 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 that is kind of I I don't know if the species is in trouble. I you know people who grew up herping Big Bend in the seventies. In the 80s, talk about how you could find four to ten trans rat snakes a night. 
uh, in southern Brewster and Presidio counties in Texas, and uh, and that wasn't uncommon at all. And I think the time that I started doing it in, in the aughts, you know, two thousand six, two thousand seven, um, it was, um, you know, maybe one a night was more typical, um, in a good rainy year uh, season in the desert. Um, yeah, but I will say that more, you know, there's these, uh, we have some magazines in Texas, you know, <laughs> called like mm-hmm. Texas monthly or Texas highways, you know, and a lot of Texas pride type articles, yeah, but there's, um, a number of articles that have come out recently about how much Terlingua, this ghost town where trans pickles snakes is like their episode, the blonde trans pickles snakes. I mean, is their epicenter is, um, uh, about how many people from you know have moved into this little area this cool area just west of the national park um and yeah. and and so i i wonder how that's going to affect the population of transpicos rat snakes there and especially the blondes which is they only occur there you know we don't know that they yeah. occur on the other side of the rio grande in mexico it's possible that they do there is that type of limestone that you find mm-hmm. um is 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 across the river and there's no reason to think that they wouldn't cross um but it's unknown uh, at this point if it is known it hasn't been brought to my attention so i just think you know we just need to be careful i currently i i work in um um ecological restoration and so i work for a company mm-hmm. called native american seed and we we came out with a a seed mix the first commercially available native plant seed mix for a reptile or reptiles habitat in their food web uh, for the Texas horn lizard. Yeah. Uh, Phrynosoma cornutum, Texas horn lizard, which is the state reptile of Texas, you know, horny toads and uh, yeah. their symbol of the West, you know, and uh, the first reptile that the first animal that Lewis and Clark sent to president, uh, president Thomas Jefferson in hmm. uh, eight, 1804 when they started their, their expedition, uh, core discovery expedition. Um, you know, so, um, I think as people move into these environments where transpecos let rat snakes live, they just need to be not changing it too much, you know, leave it yeah. wild, uh, use native plants. Don't bring in stuff from Africa or, you know, Australia or whatever, you know, use stuff that can actually work fun- ecologically in the food web that exists in big bend, you know, because, um, the, 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 the lizards that baby transpecos rat snakes probably eat, um, are feeding on insects that depend on native plants. And so, uh, you <laughs> yeah, know, so important. I will say that if we want blondes to exist in the future, I think we need to keep that environment where they live as wild as possible. And, uh, and if you move out there and you build a house out in big in, in West Texas in the big bend area, um, try to, try to work with nature and not so much dominate it, you know? Yeah. <laughs> but that's, um, that's a great. Sentence. If you, if you move anywhere, Take that advice. Yes. You know what I'm yeah. saying? That's, that's just great advice anywhere you're going. Yeah. And, you, you know, I think, um, you know, they've gone, uh, their numbers have gone down probably drastically in the Franklin Mountains, you know, near El Paso. Um, and, and there's such a huge human population there now. And that and there's been a lot of development and, and other activities in the Franklin Mountains in the past, you know, since the 1960s or 1970s, I think. And, um, 
And so maybe that has something to do with it. And so I just think it's it's just best to be careful. No, they're not endangered or threatened, I don't think, at least not legally. But um, uh, I think we can tread a little bit lighter and more aware when mm-hmm. when we're in those places, especially if we're living there. <clears throat> it is so I, I I know this can be a prickly topic, so we, we don't want to like dive too too into like the secrets of finding them in the wild. But at the same time, is this a I think it's fair to ask this question. Is this a species that if if you're going out the most readily way to find them is to cru- cruise one on a road moving around? Or is it a you kind of stumble onto them when you're shining cuts for other things? Or because the the funny thing about me is I will inevitably make it to West Texas to herp, and I know there's people that will hear this that are going to lose their mind. I you know if I see an alterna, I'm, which is the, one of the main drivers for people to go to Davis and places like that, I, I would be like, that's really cool. If I saw a Bojotophis, I'm going to lose my damn mind. <laughs> like, that, <laughs> like that's the one I want to see if I go to West yeah. Texas. That makes sense. Um, so anyway, just like what, what's the process? Because I know in your book, one of my favorite things about your book, and it's inspired me with the Hognose book. Um, and I don't know if, if the eco folks are going to bite anymore, but I love the little story. That, not little, but the story about you finding the first one and, and, and you know. So if you just could talk a little bit without giving too much detail – about like even just broad conditions, time of year, that kind of thing. Yeah. Generally they tend to be um, active um, when it starts getting pretty, pretty warm or even hot out in Mm -hmm. the Trans-Pecos. And, um, and it's possible that they're active when it's not hot, but when it's just seasonally warm in the spring and in the fall. And, uh, but they don't tend to be slithering across roadways at least in, in the daytime. That has hardly ever been observed. They, I think what's probably happening is they're just hanging out near their hibernacula yeah. um, uh, during the day. And that probably has some advantages um, to them. And But <clears throat> generally, yeah, June, it tends to be, in Texas at least, tends to be like the um, – around the the new moon when when there's not as much moonlight in the sky and um um and generally after you know 11 o'clock at night or so <laughs> you'll see them cruising the roads and that also coincides with the rainiest month in the the, the trans-pecos and the big bend areas of texas so um you know, that's probably when males are moving out looking for females to copulate with. And, yes. um, and, uh, and so that does, that does seem to be the best month, at least in Texas. Now I, I, whether it's controversial topic about, you know, collecting them or not, I will say that like I'll reiterate rather that, uh, so much of Texas is privately owned. So we're pretty much the only way that you can find them in Texas is just by, um, walking the road cuts or at mm-hmm. night or driving the roads because it's really the only access points you, you can have to, to find them. Um, and if you were to try to walk out on foot and find them in their habitat in the desert, good luck because there's just <laughs> cactus and there's uh, canyons and, you know, mine shafts and, <laughs> you know, it can be a Aatrox. dangerous place to be. <laughs> yeah. Aatrox and, you know, armed um, Texans. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, 
yeah, so uh, it's probably, you know, uh, uh, a precarious situation sometimes. You'd be wandering, ambling around out there in the desert at night. Very, very um, cool. Yeah. So any final thoughts on the snake that you've – I mean, I, you, you mentioned that you don't keep any today, but that certainly doesn't mean that they're not still holding a special place in your heart. Is there any final thoughts you'd like the listeners to know about this species of snake, the main focus of the, the episode today? Yeah, I would just say, you know, try to learn about them and and uh, and try to, you know, everybody's a scientist, you know, and I think every, anybody can contribute to what we know about them. And I'm, I'm the reason I wrote a book about them is because I wanted to read, <laughs> I wanted to learn about them and there wasn't a book. And so uh, gathering that information together kind of helped. But I, I want to learn what other people are, are, are knowing about this snake and, um, and, uh, you know, maybe the, to me the coolest thing about these is that um, they do have such interesting uh, adaptations. You know, they have these big eyes for being able to live this kind of nocturnal existence, you know, eating, consuming bats. And um, uh, they have a weird number of chromosomes. They have 40 pairs of chromosomes, whereas most uh, boas, uh, crotalin snakes, you know, rattlesnakes, et cetera, pit vipers and colubrids and that family and that same family have, uh, or the same tribe even have 36 chromosomes. And so you look at the Baja California rat snakes and they have 38 pairs of chromosomes. And so it's kind of like similar to what you see, like with humans versus chimpanzees, there's a close, it's very close number of chromosomes, but something evolutionarily happened where those, um, uh, chromosomes broke into more and more pieces uh, in that Bogartopus line- lineage, you know. Um, but yeah, just the fact that these these interesting mutations exist in the wild, like the blondes, um, and that you can learn about natural history just by keeping them and and studying their genetics in captivity, and um, you know, and as you start to learn things publish them you know that's what i would yep. tell people P- publish them uh there's the, the there's bigger journals like um journals on herpetology and journals on evolution and uh journals on husbandry and uh and then there's even smaller regional journals like the southwestern center for herpetological Reser- uh, research uh switcher uh, abbreviated um, has a, a newsletter where you can s- submit observations whether they're captive or in the wild. So, um, that's what, that's what I get a big kick out of. Very excellent. Nice. I, I agree. 100%. Well, this was quite the episode. So thank you. I, I know that you mentioned that you've been kind of out of herpeticulture for a little while, but ha- like, do you keep anything currently or is it basically your snakes uh, yeah. on loan and that's it? I've got, I've got four adult porn snakes. Um, okay. <laughs> they're, uh, but they are like a kind of a, a new morph combinant uh, of oak, extreme oaky tea and charcoal, and charcoal oaky oh, tea. Nice. And so I'm, I, I'm trying to make extreme charcoal oaky teas. And so <laughs> I just hatched out my first um, F1s from the charcoal male bred to uh, an extreme oaky tea female um, just this past week. So I got 12 babies out of that. And that's, 
been several years in the works, so I'm excited about that. Um, oh, cool. But yeah, not, but not very much, you know, these are just kind of a straggler project I've had for a while. Most of my work has been in the, I still do herpetology, but it's more about ecological restoration using sure. native plants and, mm-hmm. and, um, and then, um, uh, the odd, uh, peer reviewed publication sometimes. Um, uh, but, uh, uh, that's it. Just those four adult snakes, but there's, you know, they're still a joy and they're still beautiful. And, um, uh, I love to show them to people there. Um, Corn snakes were one of my first loves, maybe from having read the the Caulfield book. Yeah. So, oh yeah. yeah. Now you 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 can't not love corn snakes after reading the Caulfield mm-hmm. book. I, I'm just, uh, I I had read um, oh my god. Now I need to like, fifty lashes and penance. Um, snakes and snake <laughs> hunting. There we go. Jeez. Okay. I read yeah. that one three or four times when I was in college and grad school, and it, you know. And I had heard of the keeper and the kept, but I, I hadn't actually read the keeper and the kept. And uh, my I, I I got an app that actually Eric with Morelia um, Python Radio was talking about this app. I think it was on his podcast that you can take pictures and it basically will convert a book into a PDF. And so I, I bought I did a lot of travel this year, and so I bought a Kindle at Target for like next to nothing. I downloaded the app on my phone, and I. You, the first thing I did is I scanned the keeper and the kept, and I, wow, I read wow. it in um airplane cool. while I was flying around, and I was just like, what the hell is wrong with you? You're 44 years old, and you're just now reading this book? I was just like, <laughs> uh, but I teach herpetoculture, and there's so many awesome, like, two to three sentence lines in that book that I was just like, oh, my God, I need to put this in the PowerPoint like yesterday. Yeah. And one of the things, since we're on this topic, and we do go on tangents here, so we we haven't done a Caulfield tangent ever, but I didn't want to say this. I don't I, know how. I don't yeah, know how we've never. I, I did a. I wrote a paper, and it, I, you know, when you when you write peer reviewed papers, you get a little snotty every now and then. You try to slide something new in there, and it's just kind of like, let's just see how this goes. And the peer reviewers are either going to tolerate it. I won't say like it tolerate it or eviscerate it like those are the two options yeah best case examples yes and so i had used the phrase ofi culture for (laughs) snake culture specifically and you know we have herpetoculture and i'll admit it was well at the time i thought it was dumb but i was reading you know on my tablet i'm somewhere over the middle part of the country and flipping caulfield used the term ofi culture in keeper the kept and I read that and I was and I yeah, like I was in my own world and I yelled like, son of yeah. a bitch, like just like that. And everyone in the airplane like turned around like, what the hell's going on? Uh, but yeah, but if Carl Caulfield christened the word, you know, that's like Jesus himself saying it. So this next go around, I'm figuring out a way to honor him and get that published because I, I, I love that term because um, our, you know, I, I we have herpetoculture, but I will fully admit rearing like i feel like all the different organisms that we do they all have their own form of culture you can't yeah the, the things that the frog people are doing is not even close to what we're doing and the lizard people you know so turtle people uh but anyway that's my end of that, <laughs> I, so that, that I, yeah, yeah i can relate to this i uh 
my good friend Jerry Salmon and I, he's a, a herpetologist. We we put out a paper in 2012 about the the gentleman who had discovered he was the first white person to you know to discover a transpecos rat snake and uh, and contribute it to Western science. Um, and it was several specimens that he found in the type series. Um, uh, but he um, anyway. This was a, it was a very interesting story. He was he was actually shot off of his horse. He was a uh, this is like a very like old Whoa. west type of story. Yeah, he was a he was a saddle maker in Pecos, Texas, and uh, and he was right probably riding his horse down from the Pecos River uh, along Toya Creek all the way into the Davis Mountains on a very wet year, nineteen oh one, and uh, when there was water in the creek, so he could water his horse. And he found a gray-banded king snake, and he found several transpecos rat snakes. How he found them in 1901 with <laughs> only a horse in the Davis yeah. Mountains? Uh, like, was he lifting rocks? Uh, you know, what was going on? I don't. Who knows? Was he using a lantern? Uh, you know, like yeah, <laughs> it's it's interesting thing. You know, uh, but uh, we it wasn't even known what his first name was. Um, it was just he was the collector was known in the literature from Caulfield and from other books, Dittmars, that it was Mister E. Mayenberg. It was just the first initial of his first name was known. And so we found an obituary from, in a newspaper in 1901, and it was he had been killed in 1903. So it was 111 years before we made this discovery, and we published this in the Herpetological Review. And we tried to say, I tried to put sneak in the word. He, this happened 111 years ago, so I was using Tolkien. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, the editors wouldn't let that fly. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But, um, yeah, man, they're on it. But yeah, <laughs> well, very, yeah. very cool, Dusty. Um, so, if, if if people have Transpecos questions or, or anything along those lines, is there any? If they want to buy uh, Texas horn lizard seed, um, <laughs> is, if, is there somewhere that people can like reach out or ask questions or contact you? Yeah, you know, I. So one of the things I do for for Native American seed is we will develop seed mixes for different species and their their habitats and their food web needs and stuff and at least native texas species and so um and so uh if you want to reach out to me my email there is dusty at seedsource.com um i also have a website that i'm working on to help landowners with Mm -hmm. with horned lizard habitat restoration and possibly population um reintroduction and that sort of thing uh, at rehorning, uh, just rehorningtexas.com is what it is. Nice. Um, yeah. So either one of those ways is a good way to, to find me. Um, but yeah, it, it would be my dream to come up with a, a, a subock seed mix for, <laughs> for uh, cool. residents of awesome. Terlingua, Texas one day, you know? <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. Well, well, thank you for giving two hours to us and, 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 to anybody that you know in the future this episode will be there for no thank you it, blo- it blows yeah. my mind it blows my mind that i get even asked to do this because uh, uh i just i just my mind is blown that people will still know what my book is because <laughs> they've already oh, printed no. like three thousand copies back in 2008 i was in my mid-20s i'm 43 now so it's just like i was a completely different person when i did that book <laughs> and so yeah Thank well, you, thank you. I appreciate it. No worries, man. It's it's a it. 
I, I would. I don't think it's too strong a language to say it's a modern classic if you're a Kaluber keeper, because <laughs> mm-hmm. we don't have the books like the boa constrictor people, the python, pe- the python people have book after book after book after book. Yeah. yeah. But you know, one of the things that literally made me think, huh, maybe I'll write a book, is just like you said when you were, you know, in your in your twenties, there is not a flipping book. Um, right. There's the small AVS books. There, you know, uh, but a big chonky book for nerds that doesn't really exist and and and, you know and and it needs to so and you did it so thank you for doing that um and um yeah well we might have you on again if we end up getting a lot of questions out of this who knows so um thank you no worries thank you for coming on man so uh if you want to find um me you know where to go, but if this is your first time listening, because you're a Transpecos rat snake nut, <laughs> um, I'm at Dr. Crawdad on Instagram, Zach Lofman on Facebook. As always, always looking for graduate students to do herpetoculture and herpetology. Um, so if, if, if you want to reach out to me, I, I know you all that are in that age bracket, just reach out with your social media platform. I'm not on TikTok. We'll not go there. So don't look me up there. But Instagram, Facebook. Uh, and then those of you who want to reach out potentially traditionally, it's Z Loafman, L-O-U-G-H-M-A-N, at westliberty.edu. So that's where you can find me. Um, where can they find you at, Clint? You guys can find us at metazotics.com. Uh, you can also find me on Facebook, Clint Bartley, or uh, the Metazotics business page. Email us, metazotics at gmail.com. Um, and as a reminder to... Our CCR listeners uh, at metazotics.com. If you use CC Radio 5, it'll get you 5% off of anything that you get. There you go. So, this this has been episode 37, I believe, of Kluber and Kluberoid Radio. Uh, Whatever time of day or night it is, I hope you're having a good one. Later. Thank you, Zach. No worries.